Hey, friend, welcome back here to the Semi-Seminary. Here we are another week, another installment of our Bible study series. We're calling the Bible for Grown-Ups. We're going to wrap up our study of the prophecy of Nehemiah tonight. And we're going to attempt to use the prophecy of Nehemiah to answer one of humans' age-old questions. How do we get happiness? How do we be happy? What's the value as we Christian believers? What's the value of our happiness to our witness? Does it make a difference to those who are non-believers around us if we walk around all day acting like we're on a fast track to hell, do not pass, go, do not collect $200? Does it make a difference if it seems like to others we might actually question the joy of our salvation? Something to think about. Listen, we're going to wrap up Nehemiah, and I'm going to see you on the other side. So we are going to actually be finishing tonight our series on Nehemiah. Uh, Remember, he's the man for the hour. This overall series is building for God. Um, And we're going to finish up at chapter 12 tonight. We're going to actually skip... Uh, to make it easier for me with all the difficult names that's in the first half. Uh, we're going to skip down to 27. I don't think that reading out the names would be of particular interest or, or use to us anyway. Um, so let me just recap by stating that Nehemiah's chief work, remember, was to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem for God. And then too, once the walls were restored, once the protection of the walls had been Returned, then he was able to build up the spiritual and the physical and the cultural life of the city inside the walls and build up Jerusalem, return Jerusalem to a holy city of the Lord, which is what he's done. We've reached <coughs> the point here at the end of the book. Walls are built. Uh, last week we saw I tried to encourage the people to move from outside of Jerusalem into the city and there were unknown, the number of people are just lost to us, known only to God, who actually volunteered to move back into the city to repopulate the city of Jerusalem, to pack their bags and do God's will based on their own personal faithfulness. Now, we see tonight, verse 27, the dedication of the walls of the Jerusalem. That's what we're going to look at the dedication of the people of God, the walls of the city of God. Uh, And I'm going to call this message tonight, A Praise to Remember. And I'll begin uh, reading God's Word here. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 12. (coughs) Pardon me. Again, I'm going to be reading 27 to 47. I'm a horrible pronouncer of Hebrew names. (coughs) I am just going to fake it and act like, please, if you would, just act like I got it right. For the dedication of the new wall of Jerusalem, the Levites... Right, those that are in charge of the religious practice of the people of Israel. The Levites throughout the land were asked to come to Jerusalem to assist in the ceremonies. They were to take part in a joyous occasion with their songs of thanksgiving and with the music of cymbals, harps, and lyres. The singers were brought together from the region around Jerusalem and from the villages of the uh, Nidophathites, they also came from Bilth Galgal, the rural areas of Geba and Asmaveth, for the singers who built their own settlements around Jerusalem. The priests and the Levites first purified themselves, then they purified the people, the gates, and eventually the wall. I led the, this is Nehemiah, 
I led the leaders to, of Judah to the top of the wall and organized two large choirs of thanks. One of the choirs proceeded southward along the top of the dung gate. Uh, Hoshaiah and half of the leaders of Judah followed them along with Azariah, Ezra, Meshulam, Judah, Benjamin, Shemaiah, and Jeremiah. Then came some priests who played trumpets, including Zechariah, the son of Jonathan, the son of Shemaiah, the son of Mathaniah, the son of Micaiah, the son of Zakur, a descendant of Asaph. I just want to stop right there for a second. Because you're only going to see one guy. And who, we, who are we actually talking about? Let me run back through the... We're talking about a guy whose name is Zechariah. Right? And he's a trumpet player priest. And what you want to notice here is this is the only of the names that actually has more information. It talks about Zechariah specifically, and it gives his lineage. And if you guys remember in Hebrew scripture, when they start running out people's lineage, that's like, um, like a hyperlink on a web page. You know you're referring to information somewhere else. Okay. So this is out of the pattern. And so we've got Zechariah, the son of Jonathan, the, Shema, the son of Shemaiah, the son of Mataniah, the son of Micaiah, the son of Zachur, a descendant of Asaph. Okay, who's the important person here probably? Asaph, right? Who is Asaph? Anybody? Okay, Asaph uh, is a writer of, I think, about 15 to 20 of the Psalms the musical ones, and Asaph was the first musical instrument priest that played at the dedication of the original Solomon's temple. So when, when Nehemiah mentions that this particular guy, Zechariah, was there, he wants us to also know, look, this, is, this goes all the way back. This guy, these people have been doing this. These are the same people, like genealogically, that blessed God's first temple. These are the right guys for the job. That's why, Nehemiah, that's, why that's thrown in there. It's an important part, this guy. being. And so I also think it's just kind of neat. But let's stumble through a few more names. Uh, because Zechariah has some colleagues, and they are Shemaiah, Azriel, uh, Milalai, Gilalai, my. Nethanel, Judah, and Hanani. Then they used the musical instruments prescribed by David, the man of God, and Ezra, the scribe, led this procession. At the fountain gate, they went straight up the steps on the ascent of the city towards the city of David. They passed the house of David, then proceeded to the water gate on the east. The second choir went northward. Okay, one goes one way, one goes the other. And around the other way to meet them. This is Nehemiah's bunch, okay? He says, I followed them together with the other half of the people along the top of the wall, past the tower of the ovens to the broad wall, then past the Ephraim gate to the old city gate, past the fish gate, and the tower of Hananel, and on to the tower of the hundred. Then we continued on to the sheep gate and stopped at the guard gate. So he's just mentioning the landmarks as they travel in their musical, joyful choir, around the wall to meet the other group, okay? The two choirs that were giving thanks then proceeded to the temple of God, where they took their places. Nehemiah says, so did I, together with the group of leaders who were with me. We went together with the trumpet-playing priests, uh, Elikim, uh, 
Mesaiah, Amin, Micaiah, Eloanai, Zechariah, and Hananiah. And then there are some singers, their names, Masai, Shemaiah, Eleazar, Uzi, Johanan, Malkajah, Elam, and Ezer. They played and sang loudly under the direction of Jezariah, the choir director. Many sacrifices were offered on that joyous day, for God had given the people cause for great joy. The women and the children also participated in the celebration, and the joy of the people of Jerusalem could be heard far away. On that day, men were appointed to be in charge of the storerooms for the offerings, the first part of the harvest, and the tithes. Remember, you give, uh, you give your Thanksgiving offerings. That's different than your tithing to these folks, right? They're responsible to collect from the fields outside the towns the portions required by the law for the priests and the Levites. For all of the people of Judah took joy in the priests and the Levites in their work. Now that the walls have been protection have been rebuilt, right? The functioning of the spiritual life of the people of God can begin beating. The heart can begin beating again. And that's what's happening here. That's what they're talking about. Custom of having uh, choir directors. Wait, I'm sorry. I missed the spot. They perform the service of their God and the service of purification is commanded by David and his son Solomon. And so did the singers and the gatekeepers. Custom of having choir directors to lead the choirs in hymns of praise and thanksgiving to God began long ago in the days of David and Asaph. So now in the days of Zerubbabel and Nehemiah, the Le uh, all Israel brought a daily supply of food for the singers, the gatekeepers, and the Levites. The Levites in turn gave a portion of what they received to the priests who are the descendants of Aaron. And we will end our reading there, chapter 12, verse 37. Again, title of tonight, Praise to Remember. I hope that uh, most of you uh, would agree with me that if we look around the world today, it seems like there's relatively very little happiness. At least you'd have to say, uh, it seems like, anyway, uh, it's pretty rare that we find true happiness. Yet happiness, for we humans, is the most sought after commodity, except it can often be the most elusive in our lives. Everybody wants it. Seems like few actually can get it. And some would even go so far as to say that in our modern age today, the idea of true happiness is extinct. Now, maybe you're skeptical about that statement, and, and you're doubting that. The next time you're in a traffic jam, look at the driver's face beside you. Maybe look in the mirror in front of you, and you'll see happy people all over this rushing world, right? No. Perhaps you're in the cafe. Look how the man and the wife at the table beside you turn and talk to one another, or don't. And certainly don't listen to one another. Listen to how children speak to parents today, and vice versa. Listen to how parents talk about their children. All we have to do is look tomorrow morning at the various headlines in any newspaper you choose, and you will see that there is most assuredly an appetite for bad news. There's very little good news around. Nothing seems to make us happy, it would seem. <laughs> when you consider the economic scene around us, it does not promote happiness. Houses and property have never been more expensive. Look at the moral scene around us. Crime rates are at an all-time high. 
We look at the sin around us and we see people delving into sins that wouldn't have even been mentioned just one generation ago. I've heard this generation or this age called the aspirin age because everybody has a headache. Seems that nobody's happy, nobody is certainly content or at peace. <coughs> Our hospitals have never been worse. Filled with people. Told, <coughs> pardon me. <coughs> But almost 50% of beds are occupied uh, people whose ailments have come from a mental or emotional cause, or at least are contributing factors. This is the world in which we live, right? We have all of the modern conveniences that everybody had hoped that we would finally get when we were kids, all the technology imaginable, yet men's and women's hearts are failing them every day for fear. And few people could call themselves truly happy. That Christians are God's people, if we encompass those that we find here in Hebrew Scripture. Should they be a happy people? They should. But the fact of the matter is, if we're honest with ourselves and we're honest with others, we, of all people, get the reputation for being the most sour-faced than all of the sinners in the world put together. Isn't that the way Christianity is often perceived? In fact... Religion in general is generally thought of as something that's depressing. Depressing. Why would I want to become religious, people say? Why would I want to become a Christian with all those do's and don'ts? I'm depressed enough as it is without having to take on the rules and the obligations of Christianity. One religious pilgrim on one occasion by the name of Hagar uh, was climbing up a holy mountain and he cupped his hands and shouted to someone at the mountain he didn't know, what's the secret uh, to happiness? And the answer came back, celibacy, abstinence, fasting, poverty. Hager didn't like the answer that he got, so he shouted back, is there anybody else up there I could talk to? Okay. It's supposed to be a joke. That's why that people feel about religion, specifically whether we like it or not, Christi Christianity has a reputation for being dour, depressing, certainly not in their life being the epitome of joy and happiness. The German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche said scornfully about Christians of his day, and I'll quote, you know, I'd believe in their salvation if they looked a little more like people who had been saved. It's a scathing critique, I think. Do we look like people who have been saved? Chief Justice, former Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court, Oliver Wendell Holmes, said, I might have entered, entered the ministry of certain clergymen I knew had not looked and acted so much like undertakers. Sometimes I think that we think that holiness has to be portrayed in some dour, depressing, dark manner. Vance Havner, <coughs> very funny Baptist preacher, I quote him all the time. Vance Havner said, uh, when one recalls that we are to rejoice in the Lord always and then looks in on a Sunday congregation, he realizes that something has happened to us since Pentecost. What's happened? Well, many of us have lost our joy. David could pray in Psalm 51, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. Why we can't lose our salvation per se, we can and many of us have 
lost the joy that comes as a result. Another great evangelist with a great name, Gypsy Smith, used to say that you could not get a hallelujah out of some Christians if you run them through the ringer. Now, it's not a problem for our own well-being because everybody wants to be happy. Everybody wants to feel happy and joyous in the Lord. But here's where the big problem comes in, a wider sphere. If we look at this panoramically, it affects the perception of our message among those who are in the world. If non-believers don't see us as a joyous people, they ask themselves, why should I believe and imbibe in such a gospel as that? That good news doesn't seem very good. Philip Brooks, this guy's a Puritan. (laughs) It's irony. He put it like this, and I think it says it well, that religion that makes a man look sick certainly can't cure the world. We betray the good news of the gospel if when people see us coming to them, all they can think of is bad news. There's something wrong with our Christianity. The famous... Evangelist in the early 1900s, Billy Sunday, the evangelist put it like this, if there's no joy in your religion, there's a leak in your Christianity somewhere. Right? And I'm not talking about airy-fairy, you know, happy-clappy, some kind of that, you know, the emotional bit that ignores the stark realities of life, the tears that we shed on a regular basis. Talk about a joy that's different than just happiness in the world, right? A joy that transcends even the darkest experiences that we might go through, all of us, as children of God. Well, commentators said that the Christian is a person of joy. A gloomy Christian should be a contradiction in terms. And nothing and nothing in all religious history has done Christianity more harm than its connection with black robes and long faces. As we read the Bible in the New Testament specifically, we see that Christianity is a most encouraging faith, a joyous faith, because it's the least repressive faith, or at least it ought be in the whole world. While there are sorrows in Christianity, no one's arguing that. While there are many stern disciplines that we have to come to grips with, the end of Christian faith is resurrection, not burial. Arising again to new life. Christianity is a feast and a festival, not a funeral. While we do not believe that we're to be like ostriches and just stick our heads in the sand and just pretend like everything's okay, when our hearts are breaking, we're to smile and sing choruses and tell people that we're as happy as the day is long. That's not what I'm talking about. We're not to ignore the stark realities of life. Neither are we to be the personification of the grim reaper. And look, as if we have no joy in our hearts whatsoever. What does that do to the gospel of Jesus Christ? As we look at chapter 12 of Nehemiah, we see that although things were hard, and you remember, right? Again, some of them had to actually pack their bags And leave homes that they had out in the suburbs that were luxurious, some of them, right? And come into and and begin living an urban life in Jerusalem for God, it cost these folks everything. Although things have been difficult, right? They have been fighting and building for a long time. With great opposition, the walls are finished. There was a joy. Despite all these hardships, there's a joy. 
When it came to the day of dedication for the walls of Jerusalem, there was celebration. I want us to see this evening that the celebration ought to speak to us as children of God, the power of joy that ought be ours as people of God tonight. Let's see if we can claim it for ourselves by looking at it in a bit more detail. Hey, listen, if you've made it this far, first of all, thanks for making it this far. I hope that you're enjoying it. I hope you'll enjoy this second half. But I'd just like to take one second just to ask if you could do me a favor. If you are enjoying the semi-seminarian, if you like what we're doing here, if you could... If you could like us, whatever platform, if you're on Spotify or Apple or Stitcher or whatever your platform is, if you could like us and follow us. And if you have the opportunity to maybe give us a review, like on Apple Podcasts, we would certainly really appreciate it. That really helps get the Bible study message out to better, to more people because of the algorithm stuff. I don't really understand it all, but I've been told it helps. So if you could help me, I would certainly appreciate it. Listen. Not going to take up any more of your time. We're going to go right back to our story. The first thing I'd like to leave with you as we, as we depart from Nehemiah is the precursor to happiness. What is the precursor to true happiness? Now, it's important before we get all carried away and start dancing down the aisles with tambourines. Holiness precedes happiness. Holiness must precede happiness. Let's look at verse 30, chapter 12. We see that Nehemiah called the priests and the Levites. They, they purified themselves. Then they purified the people. They purified the place. Then they purified the walls. We have to understand if we are to be happy as Christians, if we want to have the joy of the Lord, we've got to be pure. Because holiness precedes happiness. These folks didn't just say, oh, great, the walls are built. Let's have a party. Let's have a great celebration. But the first thing to be done in this joyous festivity was that the priests came and they were cleansed. Then the people were cleansed. Then the walls were cleansed. Then the gates were cleansed. One businessman was asked on one occasion, what is the secret to happiness? His answer surprised the asker. He put it very simply. The important thing to being content is being content with one's lot. Provided it's a whole lot. It's the way people live their lives. Provided it's a whole lot. If I have all that money, if I, I'll be happy. Whole lot of fame, whole lot of success, a whole lot of education, pleasure, food, sex, luxury, entertainment, you name it. World's perception is that a whole lot means happiness. But the Bible says that happiness equals holiness. To not have things of the world, the material things, the things, pleasurable things that are sinful. God's word says if you really want to be happy, you have to be holy. So, before the people of God celebrated, they were purified. Well, Chuck Swindell says it this way, moral carelessness and borderline sin give laughter its hollow ring. I think that's very beautiful. Right? If there is sin in one's life, 
If there's compromising, if there's some sort of backsliding, isn't it true that there's a hollow ring in the laughter? Something, something wrong with me, people say. I just don't seem to have what they have. Right? Why can't I have that happiness? Because they're not willing to pursue the holiness. They're not prepared to face the sin that's in their lives. And so their laughter has a hollow ring. They're not prepared to let go of the, whatever that thing is that is making them downcast. The psalmist says in Psalm 24, Who shall ascend unto the hill of the Lord? The one that has clean hands and a pure heart. Psalm 16 says, Show me the path of life, and in your presence is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures evermore. Right? At God's right hand, pleasures evermore. At God's right hand, it's holy. And if you're going to get there and enjoy all of those pleasures that God has for you, you need to be holy even as the Lord is holy. The value of a dedicated wall is valueless without a dedicated people. The value of the dedicated wall is valueless without these dedicated people. We need to understand that. We can build 20 churches and we can be the, have the most state-of-the-art of art architecture, right? But if you don't have dedicated people, what's the point of a dedicated building? A building set apart that we might say is holy in the sense of what it's used for. But what's the use of anything holy if we're not holy? The precursor to holiness, or happiness, friends, it's holiness. Here's the second thing I'd like for you to see tonight. And this is actually the main thought for this evening. I want you to see the expression of the people's happiness. Because I think this is wonderful. This shows, I, to me, the vibrancy of all of this. How they expressed their love of God in their lives. How they showed the joy for God in their lives. They show in two ways. By celebration and by singing. Now, if you were to cast your mind back to uh, when they were in exile, or you might even remember, maybe not, Psalm 137, where it says, By the rivers of Babylon, they, there we sit down. And yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. We hanged our harps upon the willows in the midst thereof, for there they carried us away captive, requiring of us a song. And that they, wa they wasted us, required of us mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. You guys familiar with the reply of God's people? How shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? If I forget thee, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget her cunning. They were out of God's city. They were away captive by a godless nation in the empire of Babylon. They couldn't sing. They had lost their song. But now we see them with the walls rebuilt and with their lives rededicated. Now we see them praising God with Nehemiah. Nehemiah's delivered them from all of this. He's brought them to a place where the walls are built, where they're back in the city. And now the joy of the Lord has returned and become their strength. 
What a wonderful story of a turn. Don't call it a comeback, right? What a great story of a turnaround this is. And now they take the opportunity to publicly say thank you to the Lord for the work that's been accomplished. As they stand at those walls and they witness him, they lift their hands and their voices and their hearts to God in adoration. The passage says that they sought the Levites from their places, the Levites from around the nation. And the Levites were brought to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication of the wall as a joyous occasion. The word joyous or gladness here, I think uh, verse 27, Nehemiah, literally means gaiety or mirth, pleasure, delight. They were filled with the spirit of joy and celebration. goes on to say that they praised God with hymns of thanksgiving and songs that were accompanied with cymbals and harps and lyres. So this great company of people were gathered. It says that the sons of the singers were assembled from the district around Jerusalem. Verse 27 and 28, the singers were brought together from the region around Jerusalem. These were specialists in the field of praise and worship in Hebrew Scripture. And so they got these folks together, right? The folks who knew what they were doing when it came to a joyous praise and worship. And they said to him, lead us. They asked him, lead us in the happy celebration towards our God. And let us enjoy ourselves, praising and magnifying and celebrating what the Lord has done for us. I mean, can we just imagine that scene in our mind's eye for a moment? Right, someone says that uh, probably they had ladders put up to the walls so that the throngs of people could get up on the wall to make these circuits, right? The walls are wall. They couldn't just jump up on the wall. So imagine, right? Perhaps there are ladders lining the walls and Nehemiah leading them saying, come on, let's get on the wall. And by the dozens, people rose onto the wall. Verse 31, we read that the first great company, some say choir, proceeded to uh, Nehemiah's right toward the gate at the bottom of the city known as the refuge gate. Then verse 38 says that there is a second group, a second choir, that proceeded to the left. And he says Nehemiah, he was the one, they were, the folks followed him. Half of the people following Ezra around Half of the people following Nehemiah with the second choir. Can you see it? Right? These two great companies or choirs, these two throngs of people circling the city. They're going to meet at the house of God. One led by Nehemiah. One led by Ezra. And they've got these cymbals and these harps and these lyres. All sorts of instruments magnifying, praising God. Groups of singers, all sorts of instruments, a spirit of hilarity. This must have been what it was like. It was a praise service to remember. It certainly would not remember, uh, resemble today's average church service, would it? Verse 43, last section, joy of the people of Jerusalem could be heard far away. Now note it doesn't say the music could be heard far away. I'm sure that the music was. But that's not what's mentioned in the verse. But the joy, right? Because music isn't about music, expressive music, right? Music expresses joy in the Christian heart, right? I'll tell you that there's hardly, if any, a Christian I know that's on fire for God that doesn't love to praise God some way in music with a song in their mouth. 
from miles away. People knew that God's people were in God's city. And the city was thankful to God and praising the Lord for all that he had done. Right? They they weren't ramrod straight to attention, marching in a line. They didn't walk step by step like pallbearers, tight-lipped, straight-faced. People all around the area could hear the praise, the great shout and the glory. There was a, in, in, in the people of God worshiping the Lord. Can you imagine? Can you imagine what would it be like every single Sunday when we praise the Lord if we were like that? Can you imagine? This Baptist preacher, I love Vance Hamner. He says, uh, today's church member uh, who yells like a Comanche Indian at a football game sits like a wooden cigar store statue in the house of God on Sunday. Oh, I screwed that up. I'm supposed to say on Saturday. Screams like a Comanche Indian at a football game on Saturday. Sits like a wooden cigar store statue in the house of God on Sunday. I'll try to edit that clip so it's not. It wouldn't be too hard to get out of your bed, get up and go down and worship God if, it was, if every Sunday was like that, would it? Now let me tell you what was physically involved. Verse 28 says that there were songs of thanksgiving, music being one of the most expressive ways to communicate happiness. Right? Why? Well, it's, people believe that music short-circuits the senses with a direct pa- pathway into human emotion. Right? You guys know what I'm talking about. That sounds fancy talk, but you know what I'm talking about, right? When you hear a song that you know well, and it touches your heart right away. It's almost like it bypasses your mind. It goes right to your heart. Music is a tremendous way to praise the Lord. Now, I'm not overemphasizing music as opposed to word, right? I'm not even saying one way or the other. But the fact of the matter is, Paul says, Do not be drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Speaking to yourselves together, speaking to each other, in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart for the Lord. Something spiritual about music. Music conveys something spiritual to others, and communicate something spiritually to us. If you look at verse 42, it says they sang loudly, loudly. And it says they sang clearly. Very important. Verse 36 and 46 says they did it decently and in order. If you look at verse 36, you see that they used the instruments as prescribed by King David uh, in worship to, to God. It wasn't just some free-for-all praise. Uh, for the Lord as you like. And in verse 46, it says that they specifically followed, remember I had mentioned this guy, the following the teaching of Asaph with regard to this. The Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 14 and 40 that in the house of the Lord, that is the church of the living God, all things are to be done decently and in order. But sometimes I think people misunderstand decently in order as a euphemism for Dead and boring. Right? No, it's enjoying themselves in worshiping the Lord. Do we enjoy ourselves in worshiping the Lord? Sometimes I fear that there is a bondage on us that we can't allow our spirits to let go towards the Lord in a worship and a praise and an adoration that should be due Jesus' name. Verse 40 says they took their places, that and the families as well, uh, that they were all united together, verse 43, in family worship. Verse 43 also says that they made sacrifices to the Lord, verse 44 and 47, they dedicated money. 
right? Was it just a one-way celebration as they, something that they received as a great blessing from God? Right? They're not celebrating a one-way blessing here. But they gave unto the Lord. Right? The expression of their happiness was celebration and singing. Singing. There was an atmosphere of happiness that should surround all of God's people when they get together, even us. But does it? The precursor to happiness is holiness. Expression of happiness, celebration of singing. Third thing I want us to notice tonight is really a question. The reality of the desertion of happiness. Have we stopped smiling? Have we stopped Singing. Where is our song this evening? We give lip service to this, but, but, but the Bible teaches in Hebrew Scripture in Proverbs 17 that a joyful heart is like a good medicine. Proverbs 15 and 13 says, A joyful heart makes a cheerful face, but when the heart is sad, spirit is broken. Now imagine what a difference it might make to our church, to our fellowship, if we had such joy like this, if our singing... And our song and our celebration was like the children of Israel that we see here tonight on the wall of Jerusalem. It would be a winsome magnet to draw people in because it's something people in the world just don't have. They might, they might end up remarking, look, look, look at the joy these people have. I have to go and see what it is. I can just speak from personal experience. I don't know what your personal experience might have been. Mine is definitely something that came... I mean, I bought into Jesus and God and that whole bit when I was a kid, right? But I mean really like, no, as an adult, making my own man decisions, I want to, I want to turn my life over to God. I, wouldn't, I was a Christian, but I wasn't living like one, yeah? And I remember looking at friends and, and, and not saying, I want... Man, I wish I had the car they had or the house they had or I wish I had a gal that looked like his gal or whatever or the job or whatever. Honestly, I got to a point with my heart where I was able to go to God and say, I'm not even sure what it is that they have, but I have to have that. I want that. And it's made all the difference in the world. Not the stuff, the peace. The joy that comes with faithfulness. Right? Anne Frank, who of course was hiding in Holland during World War II. Right? She was a Jew hiding from Nazis. and She wrote a diary as a young girl in hiding. And she says as a quotation, whoever is happy will make others happy too. This is a girl in great sadness, great difficulty, yet she knew this much. Whoever's happy will make others happy too. Happiness is contagious, right? In fact, not only does it affect our church, our, this dourness, our witness, our friends, but I also want to tell you it affects everything in our lives. Our disposition for joy, right? Whether joy comes to us or does not come to us, our disposition for joy will affect everything in our lives. Thomas Carlyle, the, the theologian, said, Wondrous is the strength of cheerfulness. It's power of endurance. The cheerful person will do more in the same time 
and will do it better and maybe work for the Lord better if they've joy in their step. Have we stopped smiling? Have we stopped really singing? Really praising the Lord? So if we want to focus on the secret to happiness, true happiness, right? here we are, round on the, the uh, back stretch here. Fourthly, if we really, really want to know what the secret to happiness is, I'm going to tell you. It's your focus. Your focus. Amen. True happiness is not dependent on your outward circumstance. It's dependent on your inward focus. Whatever it is you're choosing to focus on. It's not your position in life that makes you happy. It's the disposition of your heart that brings you joy. Let me show you this. John 20, 20, very quickly. It's just part of the verse. But I want you to notice, remember the disciples, we're going to talk, this is going to be actually our story on Sunday, talking about the road to uh, um, Emmaus. But this is from John chapter 20. We're going to be actually coming, talking from Luke 24, but... Same story. John chapter 20, 20. uh, The disciples thought Jesus was gone. Right? Resurrection. It's the word of God. Then were the disciples glad? When were they disciples? When were the disciples glad? When they saw the Lord. When they saw the Lord, they became glad. That's the secret to Christian joy. It turns upon those two words. Then... And when? Then were they glad when they saw the Lord. Notice what it doesn't say. If you're focusing on yourself and how you are as a Christian, right? If you're focusing on what's going wrong in your life, then were the disciples glad when they saw themselves? No. Right? They've been focusing. They're walking along talking about what they're focusing on. They're walking along talking about how their hearts are broken because they had lost Jesus, right? What are they focusing on? Something other than the Lord. No joy, no happiness. Then and when. Then whenever they saw the Lord, when they saw the Lord, then they were happy. Right? We must Stop focusing on ourselves. Stop focusing on our circumstance. Stop focusing on some little doctrine that sometimes will give us a buzz. Right? We've got to look at Christ and, have, and then we will have pure joy. Amen. For we will be glad only when we see the Lord. For joy is not the absence of trouble. Joy, if you are looking for it, trying to find it in your life, Joy is not the absence of trouble in your life. Joy is the presence of God. Amen. So where is your focus tonight? Could the absence of Christ's presence in your life point to the absence of joy in your faith? Yes. Could the absence of Christ's presence in your life uh, uh, point to perhaps why you feel disillusioned? Of course, James Guthrie went to the scaffold during the Reformation, because of his faith, right? Beginning when he was first saved, now he's going to the gallows to be hanged. How would he feel on the day of his execution, James Guthrie? His biographer tells us, 
Waking about 4 a.m. on the day he was to be executed, Guthrie spent time in his personal worship and was asked by his friend James Cowie how he felt. Very well, replied Guthrie. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Do we have a joy like that? We must not start the fires of personal revival and then get lost in smoke. We must not lose our joy, our attractiveness to those out there in the world, our attractiveness as Christians, right? Those who don't know true happiness in Christ must not see us lose our song. We know how to find it. Can we go get it? For then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Pray with me. Father, forgive us. We ought to be a happy people. Yes, we're going through sorrows and toils and tribulation and tragedy at times, but we ought to have the joy of the Lord as our strength. We ought to have the smile of God on our hearts that transcends life's darkest experiences. Lord, if you've not received the praise that you are due from our hearts, forgive us. If you look down upon us and see a people that are not happy to be here, Lord, forgive us and make us a people whose worship and celebration is heard from afar. That not only is the Lord in this house, but the Lord is in our hearts. Joy of the Lord is in our countenance. Help us, Lord, bring us from our backsliding and show us the way ahead that we might again have the joy in our step. Focusing on the Lord that we might be glad. Amen. Any questions? Killer. It's easy, but it's hard, isn't it? We look at happiness and we realize that the key to our happiness doesn't lie in our circumstance. It doesn't lie in our material wealth. It lies on our focus. Remember then and when? When the disciples saw the Lord, when they focused on the Lord instead of their own troubles, then, then they received joy. When they moved the focus off of our life and all of our troubles, and you move the focus onto the one that provides you happiness, holiness, the, pro, the salvation to those problems, that's when we find true joy, not in the things of the world, but by simply shifting the focus off of ourselves. It's so easy to say, but folks, it's hard to do, isn't it? Anyway, that's something to think about. Hey, until next week, friend, I hope that you will be happy, wealthy, healthy, and wise. We'll see you next week.